Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always with David Scott. Great to be back, Paul. And our guest this week is Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist at AMP Capital, uh, Shane Oliver. Shane, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, it's great having you here um, with the week that we've had in terms of global markets, a lot of turmoil. We're recording on Friday. Uh, it feels like 72 hours ago, the story was Italy. That's all gone. Um, but now we've got this prospect of some trade tension. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the global picture with you. Uh, we'll move on to talking about uh, uh, maybe some of the stuff we touched on last week in terms of higher funding costs for the banks. Uh, and rising interest rates in Australia, even though the RBA uh, is on hold for um, as long as you uh, would like to predict. And then uh, we'll talk about house prices, um, and we may have an, a look at quick look at the outlook for stocks. Um, so, look, Italy splaining uh, was one of the new words that I uh, came across this week. Um, I saw one strategist note talking about, you know, we were on uh, Wednesday this week, we were at the stage where every trader who's overheard a conversation in Domino's Pizza is uh, explaining what's happening in Australian politics to you. Um, so we're not going to get too deep into that, but there was something into the, the various movements of what happened with Italy, but there was this very dramatic e uh, move in the fixed income uh, market global markets uh, this week. Um, so uh, just to recap, look, um, Italian bonds, uh, the yields on Italian bonds had their biggest move in something like 25 years, um, probably a big shock to the Italian political system. Um, but at the same time, we had this huge rush to the safety of, uh, of safe assets like uh, US uh, bonds, uh, and German bonds. Um, interestingly, gold didn't move that much, but um, but there was a massive change in the uh, yield on the on the ten year uh, benchmark ten year U.S. Treasury. Uh, Shane, what do you think uh, that was all about? Well, obviously, there's a lot of concern here about Italy, and and I guess Europe is one of these situations where you, you could argue you've got this artificial situation with a, a common currency, everyone sharing the, the same currency, and of course that creates tensions from time to time, which is why much of the much of the world over the last 40 years has gone to floating exchange rates, so you don't have those tensions. But obviously, there's a wider political agenda, motivation going on in Europe. Um, very small countries had a history of wars amongst each other, don't want to go back to that, and bringing themselves together is, has been a strong political motivation. And most Europeans, mind you, um, pushing up towards 80% on most surveys suggest that they want to stay in the euro. So as we saw earlier this decade, as we saw with Greece recently, every time there's a hint that one country might want to leave, that creates turmoil. Why is there that turmoil? Quite simply, investors say, well, I've got some Italian bonds. Um, they're currently yielding me 2.4% a week ago. Um, now I'm wondering that maybe they're going to leave the euro and I'm either going to suffer a default on those loans, won't get my money back at all, or if I do get paid back, I'm going to get paid back in something worth 20% less. So I'm going to demand a, a premium for that. And therefore, that's why earlier this week, when there was talk of a, an early election in Italy, more support for the um, Eurosceptic Northern League, that you saw Italian bond yields go from, I think, 2.44% was where they were Friday a week ago. They got as high as 3.5% through the course of this week and then pulled back down again since then. But obviously worried that there'd be an election, more support for the populists, greater pressure to leave the euro obviously drove that volatility. 
now, of course, when it's settling down a little bit, investors are saying, well, it looks like there may not be a, an early election after all. It looks like a coalition will be formed, so the yields have come back down. But they're still way up on where they should be, way up on where you'd expect for a country that has zero official interest rates. The other thing that has really changed, uh, Dave, is that while Italian um, bond yields have um, come back down, US Treasuries are still below this 3% level that everybody thought was breached and would stay breached. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, what's your take on on uh, where those um, where those U.S. deals are now? Well, it still suggests there's a bit of nervousness, as uh, Shane rightly pointed out. It's not completely solved in Italy. Uh, there is still the mechanics of, uh, of forming government to be done. It looks like they'll go and get there. Um, it's I, I a lot of the uh, the move in U.S. tens is it's actually hard to explain why there hasn't been this snap back. Uh, all I can put it down to is that the fact that there's still some nervousness out there. Um, you go and talk about Italy, but I think the uh, another factor that we've seen more recently, including overnight uh, on Thursday uh, night uh, our time, was the uh, the, the new uh, re uh, reinsertion of tariffs on uh, aluminium and, uh, and steel imports into the United States against Canada, Mexico, EU. Has uh, that seen the other uh, trade war fears fan again, and uh, obviously that tends to go and lead to a flight to safety. So we saw stocks get hosed, uh, hosed and bonds were bid. So it doesn't really surprise me too much that it's there. I thought, no, in the immediate aftermath of what Italy had announced last night, though, I thought there'd be a bit more of a move, but it hasn't occurred yet. So, uh, Shane, one of the interesting questions I saw raised this week was, that, you know, what if this was not just about Italy and this is a function of where markets are now with a lot of assets very, very highly priced um, and um, markets possibly um, at this point where we may start to see more big moves like this, um, that, you know, the Italy shock uh, was... You know, it was reflected in the Italian bond yields, but what happened to other asset prices might be the kind of move that we might expect to see a bit more this year. There is a bit of that going on there, and markets have had a good rally here. So you could, or well, at least up until early this year, they'd had a good rally. So you could argue they're vulnerable to a pullback. But then, then again, if you go back to 2011, 2012, when the eurozone crisis was at its peak, markets were arguably a lot cheaper than they are now. It didn't stop markets falling 20 odd percent. You know, through 2011, there was a roughly 20 odd percent fall in in uh, many markets around the world, including the Australian share market, on the, partly on the back of worries about a breakup of the eurozone so but i think really what's going on here is is that you know the eurozone is the world's third largest country economic bloc you know behind the us and china and so anything which threatens to break it up and therefore threatens financial turmoil across Europe, obviously threatens the global economic outlook. Um, likewise with the tariffs. You know, why do we get worried about the tariffs? Because we worry about the global economic outlook. Um, got to put these things in context. I think uh, iron and steel, sorry, steel and aluminium are just uh, – uh, less than 2% of imports into the US, and there's already a lot of exemptions in there, less than 2% of imports, so not a lot, less than 0.25% of US GDP. This is not 1929 yet, <laughs> but obviously <laughs> people worry that it might be. In 1929, I think there's a tariff hike of 20% across all imports, so very different situations today. But obviously people worry that it will escalate and threaten the global growth outlook. So that's really, I think, what's going on here. Um, whether the markets are high or low, you would still see... Uh, volatility in markets, um, not just in Europe, but globally and in Australia, um, as these things happen. It's just a function of worries about the outlook. Can I ask you to go back to some real basics on 
why economists and investors get nervous about tariffs and the prospect of a trade war. Uh, because I think for some listeners, at least, you know, they will have been seeing these headlines about tariffs and restrictions and protectionism, etc. But maybe you can talk just briefly about why this makes uh, economists nervous for the outlook. I think there's two reasons. One of the first things you study in economics, in fact, in high school economics, I was looking at my daughter's uh, economics course and uh, she was asking me about uh, what happens to the supply demand curves when you have tariffs and subsidies and those sorts of things. And virtually every scenario will always end up worse off um, because it pushes up costs. Um, Paul Keating used to joke that if Australia maintained the tariff walls that prevailed up until a few decades ago, we would become like a museum piece. Cuba is a classic example of that cutter from world trade. It was, it was driving cars that were, ma- were made in 1959. So, um, Trade protectionism may sound good in theory, but the trouble is you and I will just end up buying substandard products and the rest of the world will move on and our living standards will suffer. So that's reason number one. It leads to lower, less quality economic outcomes. Secondly, uh, economists remember the 1929 episode that you had a share market fall, you had the start of a recession. How did that recession turn into the Great Depression? Well, one reason is that America put under a bill called Smoot-Hawley at the time, uh, 20% tariff hike, roughly 20% across virtually all imports into the US. Other countries did exactly the same thing. Global trade imploded and that helped spread um, what probably would have been a recession turn it into a global depression. So they're the, they're the reasons economists worry that if we go down that slippery slope, um, we'll have tit-for-tat tariff hikes, proportional response from Europe now, America does something, Europe does something, blah, 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 back and forth, and we'll end up with something having a major economic impact. What do you think about the uh, predictability question here? Because this has become one of the big issues, this on-again, off-again scenario that we have with, that uh, even a month ago, it looked like it was all going to settle down, that Trump and uh, the Chinese uh, leadership uh, would sort out their differences and that things would Only two weeks ago, Monday (laughs) last week, it looked like it was going down a good path. Um, Yeah, I I struggle with that. (laughs) That's that's been a feature lately. Um, Trump runs hot and cold on everything. Uh, If you go back uh, two weeks ago, in fact, just prior to the talks with the Chinese vice premier in Washington, he said he doesn't expect much out of this. They've become uh, complacent or something like that, fat and lazy, whatever it is. He used some derogatory term about the Chinese and Europeans. Um, then after the negotiations ended, he said, this is going to be massive. This is great stuff. He tweeted the words to that effect. And then a few days later, when he was subject to domestic criticism, uh, that yeah, he was too, too easy on the Chinese. He, he flipped again. And of course, then we get to this week and he's talking about those tariffs coming back again later this month. So that I think makes life really hard for investors to make sense of this. Similar story, the off again, on again, on off again, whatever we're up to now, uh, North Korean summit also causes volatility. And then of course you have are we going to have a government? Aren't we going to have a government? Are we going to have a government situation in Italy? That's the same thing. And all of this volati- just adds to volatility in markets. But yes, there's no doubt that President Trump's erratic uh, personality is, uh, is fueling some of this volatility needlessly, I think. And, and David, this whippiness uh, that we see in asset prices. Um, what do you think is behind that? You know, we are talking during the week about the withdrawal of liquidity. I think we touched a, a little bit on it last uh, in the last show. Um, but uh, we're starting to see this whippiness in uh, particularly in fixed income markets. Mm. Um, maybe you can talk through what are the mechanics of that? 
Well, first and foremost, there's greater levels of uncertainty. That's a key driver of the Ripley price action. Uh, we also need to go and remember that the uh, after years and years and years of central banks being on the bid of asset classes, I know particularly bond markets, um, you can stray into our equities and the like with the other uh, Bank of Japan. That's now starting to be withdrawn. The uh, the punch bowl is being removed to uh, to use something that's been used many many times in the past. And as that happens, uh, I think the catalyst for uh, for increased volatility will probably go and, and diminish. So the news won't have to be as jaw-droppingly shocking to uh, to go and get quite a sizable move in markets. And that's what you're going to expect to see uh, until markets uh, and investors feel comfortable with their asset prices being valued fairly. Uh, so long prices have been dictated by what uh, what central banks have done. They've gone and bought bonds. That's sent a whole lot of capital out to other, other markets. Uh, once that starts getting pulled back, uh, then we'll see what the other uh, true valuation of uh, these asset prices are. It certainly makes for an interesting picture. But one of the things that we know over the last 12 months, there has been this growing picture uh, in terms of bond yields. So we've had this bit, bit of a snapback, US 10s back to 2.85, I think this morning, the last time I looked. Um, but heading higher, uh, generally, right? Well, so, probably. Probably, yes. <laughs> but all these things raise question marks about that. Uh, I mean, this is, this is the silver lining in the in the storm cloud, so to speak. Um, if, you, if you turn the whole thing on its head, if you think about the recovery from the GFC, um, we're getting into record territory in terms of the US economic recovery since 2009 and the bull market. Um, not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Um, and every so often we get these setbacks, you know, it looks like we're heading up to the peak of the cycle. Then suddenly uh, there's some worries about something, the Eurozone crisis, um, the debt ground downgrade in the US, and then we get to uh, worries about China revaluing their currency, uh, the Grexit scare of 2015, and so on and so forth. And, and we sort of go all the way up here thinking, oh, next move is higher bond yields, higher inflation, um, more aggressive central bank tightening. And then we slide all the way, slide back down again, not necessarily all the way back down, we slide back down again. So it, it sort of has this perverse effect of elongating the economic cycle. And that, and you can see that in bonds. You know, bonds were selling off into February this year on the grounds that, oh, we're at last back to a normal economic cycle. Inflation will pick up. The Fed will get aggressive and not great, but that's going to give us that volatility in shares. But ever since then, that February shakeout, it's been worries about, well, Trump's going to do tariffs. That's bad for economic growth, issues in Italy and so on. And that's seen bond yields come back down, sort of taking the sting out of the tail in terms of bond yields, so to speak. So there is a, a perverse alternative here, which is, yes, these things are negative, but they might extend the cycle a little it, bit. It really has been an extraordinarily long cycle, hasn't it? it? Has I mean, been, when you look at the charts. I think, it's, I think it's the second longest US expansion uh, post uh, Great Depression. So it's uh, it's it's nearly unprecedented. And you know, as Shane said, the, uh, the bull market now, you know, when, when the bear market, uh, the teeth of the GFC, that was 2008, 2009. We're nearly 10 years on. So it's, uh, it's been a very, very long cycle. There has been corrections over the way, but uh, certainly it's been a long, long cycle and something that has not typically been seen in the past. And to me, that once again comes back to the central bank policy that we've seen over the period. Central banks have been able to stay easier for longer simply because it's taken us so, so much longer to get back to a normal point. A, we had all this spare capacity after the GFC, but then each one of these little setbacks we get along the way, which is a shock to confidence, businesses and consumers pulling their spending, and it takes us to, longer to get back to, to full capacity and the inflation excesses you'd expect and therefore tight monetary policy. So that's why central banks have been able to hang in there for longer. Now, of course, America ended QE many years ago now, back in 2014, but 
I, I can't see any sign that the Japanese are about to end money printing no, over no. there. I mean, earlier this year in January, people say, oh, they're going to be heading for the exit soon. Well, there's no sign of that. And likewise in Europe, there's talk, well, well maybe they're going to continue QE through the December quarter. Uh, I, if the Italy concerns go on, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they start talking about continuing next year. And in the meantime, the time when the ECB will raise interest rates gets pushed further and further and further away. So one thing I'm curious about, before we move on and talk a bit about Australia, because of the length of this cycle and because of where rates have been at these incredibly low levels uh, for such a long time, uh, how do you assess the picture for what a downturn, do you think it'll make the next downturn uh, different in any way? Well, it, it could do, and it probably will. I, I, I guess you could argue on the one hand, well, each downturn is different to the previous ones, um, but it, it depends how we get to this one. If it's another one because of some exogenous shock unrelated to inflation and higher interest rates, then yes, it'll be a different downturn. It'll be like the one arguably Europe had uh, around 2011-12. Um, but if it's if it if we the normal cycle reverts and yeah you know, we do start to see bond yields going up again and the Fed continues raising rates until U.S. monetary policy is tight, then it would be become a more normal cycle, cyclical downswing. But so I think it really depends on how it all unfolds. At the moment, you could say, well, you know, we've had this unusual run in everything, but one of the key things at the centre of that run in markets is low interest rates, low bond yields, that's still in place. You have bond yields, what have they got to 2.85 in the US? That's still a very, very low number. Um, Germany, 0.35. I mean, fair enough. Italy, what's Italy now? 2.75, I think. Um, if they get to 7% like they did in 2011, I'd be, I'd be, uh, be, be really worried. But that's they could go there, mind you, but 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 in, in central, I guess, core countries, you're still in an environment of very low interest rates and bond yields, which explains why share markets are trading on higher multiples than would normally be the case. So I think the implication for markets of the next downturn really depends on where interest rates and bond yields get before that downturn. If we go into the next downturn economically and yet interest rates and bond yields are still very, very low, then you could argue that'll put a bit of a cushion under under equity markets. Should be interesting. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're here with Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Okay, so with all of that uh, uh, taken into account, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we're probably still in this situation where we'll see gradually rising rates. And one of the things we touched on last week uh, was uh, how this higher rate environment globally uh, is affecting uh, the picture for interest, borrowing costs for, for bank customers here. So RBA is on hold, but likely that, you know, discounts on mortgages of, uh, you know, anecdotally discounts on mortgages uh, are, are less than what they used to be, uh, and uh, business lending costs uh, as well uh, may be a little bit higher. Um, I think it'd be interesting to just go through what the market mechanisms are for 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 transmitting this uh, onto Australian consumers, because probably an, a, a part of the story this year for Australia's economy is that actual borrowing costs or so rates uh, heading higher, a little bit of upwards pressure on them, despite the RBA um, staying on hold until the middle of next year or mm. whenever. Mm. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, most people think, oh, well, it's the RBA that drives rates and 
the big swings do come from the RBA. There's no doubt about that. But since uh, about 2008, we have been seeing these out-of-cycle interest rate moves that are due to, to funding costs. So something like, I think it's about 65%, David, that's around that. The funding comes from bank deposits, and the main driver there is what the RBA does. But that other 45% is influenced by all those other other things. A uh, bit of concern in recent weeks around short-term funding costs. So something like 10 15% comes from short-term money market. You've seen an increase in the LIBOR OIS spread, which is technical terms for the gap between what banks pay to borrow from each other overnight versus the expected official interest rate. And that spread has increased, so you've got to pay a bit more to get money out of the money markets, although that spread has recently started to come back down again, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. The broader issue is what happens to global bond yields, because some of the funding does come from banks issuing bonds globally, so say for say three, five, five years or so. And to the extent that US bond yields rise over time, then that arguably will put added costs onto Australian banks, which they may have to pass on. The question then becomes, who will they pass that on to? My feeling is that they'd probably pass it on to those borrowers who have less media support. So investors, maybe to some degree interest-only borrowers, not your typical principal and interest owner-occupier, particularly at the time of Royal Commission going on. I can't see the banks wanting to raise rates for traditional owner-occupier borrowers. But other borrowers could face uh, a bit of pressure. Um, And then, of course, you've got this added overlay, of course, of tightening lending standards regarding expenses and income, um, which is, in Australia, I think, a de facto monetary tightening and just reinforces my view that I don't can't see the Reserve Bank raising interest rates anytime soon, 2020 at the earliest, and you certainly can't rule out a rate cut here. David, in your previous life um, uh, in finance, you used to trade uh, some of these rates and... Um uh, and you've been, writing, you've, been, you've been writing about it uh, uh, recently. Um, uh, be great to hear your perspective from what you've uh, been seeing um, in the data recently. Well, we saw uh, private sector credit for housing is uh, is definitely slowing, and that's a the backdrop underpinning that is that you've seen that uh, you know the, the lending standards have become tighter over time. Uh, house prices have fallen. There's less demand for uh, for housing credits what there's been in the past. So that's uh, that's definitely been seen. Uh, we, we saw that uh, the housing finance figures came out from March, I think it was, uh, from the ABS, and a huge drop in uh, investor lending in particular, which is where most of these uh, these restrictions are being placed on by APRA. Um, so it's all just fitting into that uh, that slowdown that. Tightening lending standards are starting to diminish, well, not diminishing, man, the supply of credit is starting to go in slow as well. Uh, so it's all points to me in terms of, uh, you know, from uh, an Australian perspective, when you talk about interest rates and the impact on, on, on everyday people's lives, a lot of it's going to be seen in the housing market, particularly uh, in expensive housing markets in Sydney and, uh, and Melbourne. Which leads us very nicely into um, this question about where housing is going. Uh, Data this week showing Sydney down just over 4% um, over the last uh, year. So it is, um, we're now looking at a proper pullback. Um, We're, um, I think, about to publish a story that talks about some of the discounting that's going on in what would have been regarded as the very high demand pockets, um, some of the very high demand pockets. So um, we've got specific examples of a house in Bondi and another one in Paddington where the guide price was cut by $200,000 on a $2 million or thereabouts house, uh, which is about a 10% discount. So, uh, And that happened over the last few weeks. Uh, now, Bondi and Paddington 
Uh, I think most of our listeners will be familiar, but for those who aren't, they are, you know, places where people want to live. Um, they are, you know, among the most desirable suburbs uh, in the country. So uh, it's certainly interesting uh, looking at what's happening in that. And some of the agents that we spoke to spoke very specifically about the uh, changes in how the banks are supplying uh, finance to uh, prospective buyers. Um, so, um, so far, it has been relatively orderly, uh, Shane. Um, you know, this is a house prices were, you know, at, uh, growing at unsustainable rates uh, for a couple of years. Uh, probably about time that there was a bit of sense came back into the market. And I suppose the big question is uh, whether it will continue to be as orderly as, as it has been. Yeah, you're right. I think it has been orderly. Uh, prices off nationwide 0.2% in May and then in, and 0.2% in Sydney. Um, so it's not it's not a crash. Um, and auction clearance rates, which in Sydney are running in the mid 50s thereabouts. I know the additional number that comes out is always too high, exaggerates, but the the finalised numbers running in the mid 50s. That's consistent with modest uh, price declines and. And our, indeed, our base case is that the declines will remain modest. Um, we're looking for another four odd percent this year in Sydney and Melbourne, then another five percent next year, and maybe another two, three, four percent the year after. Um, so, but it will go. The bottom line is, I do, do think it will go further though. So, I'm looking for a total top to bottom fall in Sydney and Melbourne of around fifteen percent, give or take, a bit, which you could say is a modest pullback given the size of the gains over the previous few years. Um, and that tightening lending standards, more supply, uh, end of FOMO, you know, people no longer have this fear of missing out um, and so on, all that, and poor affordability. Maybe, maybe sellers. And sellers. <laughs> all of those things, well, they're going to have some sort of FOMO. Um, all of those things, I think, point down in Sydney and Melbourne at least. The others are a little bit different because they're in different stages in the cycle. Um, but to get a harder landing, I think you'd have to have much higher interest rates, which I don't think we're going to get or much higher unemployment, which I, fingers crossed, I don't think we're going to get either. Um, but there are a couple of things I reckon worth keeping an eye on. One is the tightening of lending standards. Economists always have trouble predicting what a macroprudential change will mean. You can work out what interest rates mean mathematically, but you, you never quite know how tight this tightening will go. Um, so that's a bit of an uncertainty. Particularly in cities like cities like Sydney and Melbourne, we've got the, these very high price-to-income ratios and APRA is now pushing the banks to take a tougher line on high debt-to-income households. So that might be a bit of a problem there, particularly at, at, out there at Bondi, you know, where you're paying uh, multiples of your income. Um, yeah, there's going to be less people out there who can afford the debt to pay a home price, which is 9, 10, 11 times average household income. So I think that there will be issues there. But anyway, um, that's an issue worth keeping an eye on. The other one is we don't quite know what will happen in terms of investors. You know, might have been interest only in that. They're now being forced to switch across to principal and interest um, as the resets occur. And if you go through an extended period of falling prices as opposed to a brief one, they might be more inclined to say, well, geez, I'm only getting a, a net 1.5% rental yield at the moment. That's not helping me. My price fell 5% last year. It looks like it's going to fall another 5% next year they might decide to sell. And that could result in uh, deeper declines than, than what I'm talking about. But base case is 15% going to be pretty painful for those who recently got in, but I, base case is not a, not a hard landing, not a crash. Yeah, the relentless optimist in me, uh, I've frankly been watching this and kind of, you know, it's been very organised, very, uh, you know, gradual. It's like a, a 
the planes coming into land over Sydney Airport, you know, over the inner west in, in Sydney. A nice gradual uh, decline as you as you come in. Um, and frankly, you know, it would be remarkable for Australia, which has had this incredible run of, uh, you know, decades of, of growth and improving living standards, etc. And then, uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, regulators and policymakers have done a pretty good job of um, so far this being just a pretty organized uh, well-intended tap on the brakes uh, for for the housing market. Okay, I guess we did see that. I mean, there was a lot of fear around 2003, and we saw a soft landing, if you call it that, around 2004-05. Likewise, at the time of the GFC, you know, our prices had gone up more than any other country, um, and yet it was the other countries, Europe, uh, parts of Europe, parts of the US, that saw the bigger decline. So we have achieved those soft landings before, and I think part of it goes to Australians not wanting to get out. Once they've got in, they want to stay in. Um, we don't have the... Uh, well, all, all our loans are, are um, what do you call them? Um, uh, recourse. Recourse, full recourse loans. Whereas in America, you can hand the keys in, so you could have jingle mail. So we, we, we haven't seen any of that. And jingle we, mail. Jingle mail. So we <laughs> have, And also, we haven't really had the deterioration in lending standards that America had. We don't have ninja loans, no income, no job, no asset. And you could argue, well, interest only is similar, perhaps, but I, I think you're going to find that all those people in interest only do have a job. Um, they do have some assets uh, and they're not bankrupt living in, in trailer parks. So uh, I think uh, we it's very not. different to the US. We <laughs> hope, we hope. Uh, Dave, how have, you, how have you been seeing it? Oh, it's just a normal cycle, to be honest. Uh, the only thing that's different about this one is that it's not been driven by interest rates. Uh, it's been driven by macro pru. And uh, whilst you said the, uh, the regulators have done a good job and so far in like slowing the market down, it's something that I think is way after when it probably should have been applied in the past before uh, we got to uh, debt levels where you know, now we're at this position where interest rates are very low and there's a lot of concern though, if interest rates start to rise, what will happen? It would have been great to have seen this introduced in the past. That's my little rant for today. Um, Right now, it's the top end of the market. It's Sydney. Most uh, most places in Sydney are falling at the moment. Pockets in Melbourne are falling. Obviously, we're seeing uh, prices down in Perth and Darwin. That's more reflective of what's going on in the mining sector in the past. Uh, but it's all very much, you know, much as what you'd expect in a cyclical market. Um, you know, the one thing, as, uh, as Shane rightly pointed out, the uh, these uh, lending restrictions and potential, uh, you know, uh, cutting back quite significantly on uh, on higher. Uh, income to uh, debt to income loans and, uh, and just overall debt levels is something to watch because that could create a mismatch uh, in some pockets where people's incomes are nowhere near as much as what the multiples of what the value of the house is. Um, if that does come in, there's going to be a thing where people can only spend X amount and if it's X plus one, they'll have to go and take rid of the one because you simply won't be able to have people up there and, and, and finding that, uh, that offer. That's something that I think is definitely going to be you know, playing out in Sydney and Melbourne. And that's why I suspect that we'll start seeing uh, further falls in Sydney and Melbourne for quite some period of time until uh, that equilibrium between valuations and incomes comes back to a, a more neutral level. Speaking of incomes, uh, we had a big increase in the minimum wage uh, announced uh, this morning. Again, we're recording on Friday, three point five percent, which is you know, income has been a uh, you know people's wages and the, the slow wage growth has been a big part of the Australian. Uh, domestic uh, picture for a couple of years now. Uh, certainly at the minimum uh, wage earning end of the scale, um, the, income, uh, the income spectrum, 3.5% uh, is a great outcome for people who are in those areas. But Dave, um, what do you think uh, some of the, um, some of the, how this might play out? 
Well, the headline increase is fantastic on top of a 3.3% increase. And then I think uh, the, the Fair Work Commission said something that the uh, real wages of, uh, for low-income Australians have uh, risen by 4% or so over the past five years or something along those lines. Uh, most people in Australia have probably seen real wage growth not go anywhere over the, that same period. Um, my concern is that we're already starting to go and see employment growth slow after an incredibly strong period in 2017. It's only a few months of data that we've seen, but even job ads now are starting to go and slow as well. So the risk of raising uh, the minimum wage rate for uh, over 2 million Australians is fantastic on the surface, but will that go and lead to a cutback in hours for staff? Will it lead to less employment growth? Because if that does, then that could easily mitigate the, the income uh, boost that you'd go and see from this increase. And even with those that, that big increase next year, you see in the wage price index, which takes into account all of the um, all of the data, all, um, as much as, as uh, to to the reason most reasonable extent possible, the private sector uh, wages are still growing at something like one point eight, one point nine percent. Shane, how do you uh, see this uh, playing out? Well, I think most Australians would say, yeah, fair enough. Low income workers you know, deserve a, a pay rise. Um, I do have the worries that uh, that David has that. Uh, you know, we've already got 14% unemployment or underemployment if you add the two together. Um, and then if the labour market slows down because of this, hours are cut back, then it could actually work against um, against workers. So that's a bit of a concern I have. I also wonder, well, you know, last year, wages were growing around 1.8, 1.9%. Then we had last year's minimum wage increase of 3.3, which was higher than, used to be about 2.7 or something. So we had a higher increase last year, that was only enough really to get wages growth up from 1.9 to 2.1. So this year, the 3.5 is virtually the same as last year's ones, fraction higher. Um, but I suspect it's just strong enough to keep overall wages growth hovering along at 2.1. And I can't see what's going to push up underlying wages growth, particularly in the private sector, um, at a time when we've still got relatively high unemployment and underemployment. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's good news for low income workers, but I, I don't see it I don't see it magically causing a, uh, a, a a broader increase in wages growth in Australia. And I worry that unless we get much stronger economic growth, the danger, as David said, you know, it actually acts as a, um, a dampener on employment growth. Uh, one thing that I want to touch on quickly before we wrap up uh, stocks, um, we uh, often talk a lot about the, um, the, the macro picture, domestic picture in Australia and, and globally on the show, um, but uh, obviously the direction of stocks is very important for all sorts of things, um, uh, but including uh, consumer confidence and um, uh, etc. So uh, Shane, um, ASX, you know, pullback with all the Italy chaos earlier this week, this uh, week, back below that six thousand mark, um, uh, a level that it feels like it's been at for uh, as long as you can remember. Um, but uh, what's the outlook? What, what, how do you how do you see the rest of this year going uh, for stocks uh, in terms of earnings growth and uh, multiples? I, th- I, I, I think we got to remember last year as well. We had a good run up to April thereabouts, and then we sort of fell through May, June, July, and spent a lot of time wobbling around and only managed to take off at the end. And we look back and think, oh, that's an okay year. Um, returns were reasonable from the market. And I think it's going to be a similar year to that um, in a way. You know, our market um, has pulled back from its highs, I think, in January this year, but we we never had quite the run-up that the US and other markets had. Um, but 
offset to that is we've only come back about 6% from the highs earlier this year. And of course, at the moment, we're, we're well above those lows. So, and, and I'm sort of a, a little bit impressed by the resilience of our market, you know, despite the trade concerns, despite Italy, we haven't had the really big days down that other markets around the world have had or, or leading into our market would have suggested. So Yeah, we've, absolutely. We've so sometimes when you see the Dow's down one and a half, um, Australia will come out down, you know, uh, half a percent. Yeah, uh, so maybe the fact that we've underperformed for so many years has left, left us a little bit resilient. And, and maybe also Australian investors are sort of are being a bit more sanguine these days, thinking, well, we hear all this noise coming out of Trump. It's blowing the market all over the place, but we don't know whether he's going to do it or not. Um, and so maybe investors are sort of sitting back and considering things a little bit more before hitting hitting the, uh, the panic button, uh, which I think is a healthy thing. But I, I think if you think about... Um, the Australian economy, it's growing, not as strong as the Reserve Bank and the government would like. I don't, I don't think we're going to see the three, 3.25% numbers they're talking about. Um, but we're probably going to keep growing somewhere between two and a half and three. That's probably enough to support underlying profit growth of around five, six, seven percent, those sorts of numbers, which, and given that our PEs, Ford P, I think is around 15 times last time I looked, that's probably enough to support, you know, a broad rising trend in the market. Um, just the question mark at the moment is when that rising trend is going to clearly establish itself again. Historically, there is a bit of a pattern driven by the US, which sees roughness into the September quarter. Old sell in May go away, um, made a little bit worse in midterm election years, mm. and then you get a rally at the end of the year. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we spend a lot of time in continuing volatility for all the reasons David mentioned earlier, that volatility is going to remain. Um, but I do think we'll probably end the year higher. And my guess and when economists put these numbers up, they are guesses. <laughs> you know, sure. But my best guess is around 6,300 for the ASX 200 by year end. Uh, it'll certainly be interesting. Um, look, thank you for the chat. One thing that I do want to pick up, I think it was uh, two appearances on the show uh, ago that uh, that you were on. We talked about pop music uh, and uh, Shane is, um, yeah. is a pop tragic um, uh, and uh, has got a great... Uh, diverse uh, interest in uh, the types of music you listen to, but I mentioned at the time uh, a producer um, who had uh, worked with a, an incredible list of uh, of talent, and I didn't have the list with me, but his name is uh, at the time, but I do have it this week. Uh, his name is Max Martin, um, and um, I think that I uh, mentioned that he had worked with some bands. That it turns out that was fake news. I'm sorry about that. Consider it uh, corrected. But I just got like, so this guy has got Max Martin. He's a Swedish producer influenced by ABBA. And Shane, I know you're an ABBA fan, but he has 22 Billboard number one singles. Um, and that's behind only George Martin, uh, the Beatles producer. So those songs include Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. Uh, oh, last Friday Night by Katy Perry. <laughs> well, that's a classic. Last Friday Night is a classic. Wait, wait till you hear this. Dark Horse by Katy Perry. Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. Shake It Off. Yeah. Blank Space by Taylor Swift. Um, Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake. This list just goes on and on and on. It's incredible. Uh, he did worked with Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, uh, all of these guys. Like, what? Are, so if you ever get a chance to have a look at this guy's career, his name's Max Martin, and uh, he's really well worth uh, a look at just for, for one guy to have produced all of these songs. Uh, Dave, what are you listening to at the moment? 
Well, uh, I run home from work each afternoon, and uh, yesterday I was listening to ACDC Backtracks. Uh, love some, love my Akadaka. And, uh, the last concert I went and saw were the Killers down in Melbourne. And uh, I'm off to Singapore for the Grand Prix again this year. And lo and behold, the Killers are one of their headline acts. So <laughs> get to go and see them twice in a year. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, how about yourself, Shane? What's on high rotation? Well, yeah. Oddly enough, I drive a car that still has a CD stacker in there. And I buy the CDs because I like to look at the, uh, the, the, the notes and who wrote the songs and who... who um, uh, so I had noticed that, uh, that Shake It Off one from Taylor Swift that this guy was on there. Um, but oddly enough, I've just taken out 1989, Taylor Swift's 1989 from my car CD player and I've just put in Kylie's Golden. And uh, if you want to... Uh, here's some good music on the weekend. It's, it is worth checking out Kylie's Golden. So do yourself a favour and uh, and download it, as Molly would say. But the, the thing that impresses <laughs> the, the thing that impresses me about Kylie is much as we uh, the Sydney Morning Herald used to lambast it, calling the singing budgie. At which point I decided I should be a fan. So I've been buying every CD she puts out. I've been every concert since uh, she well, concert tour she's done since year two thousand. So I got in there late in the concert front, but. Um, you look at Golden, her name, I think, is on virtually every track there. Really? And that's incredibly impressive. You don't think of Kylie as a songwriter, um, but she is much more than just a pretty face singing good songs. I mean, she is a songwriter. So I think that's really impressive. And she doesn't often get enough credit as, an, as, a, as a key Australian talent and exporter. So Kylie Minogue, uh, Golden, that's uh, Shane Oliver's pick for the, for the week. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Shane Oliver from A&P Capital. Shane, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Dave, uh, great for the chat. Thanks for coming on for the chat. Always good to have you. Likewise, mate. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It was a good one. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. You can find the show on iTunes or your podcasting platform of choice. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. And you can find us all individually on Twitter. That's Shane Oliver, David Scott, and myself, Paul Colgan. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>